Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Welcome back to Becoming Church. I have to tell you right away, this is going to be an interesting conversation because as the host and interviewer, I feel very torn about what we're going to talk about today. My guest is Sarah Billups, the author of a book called Orphaned Believers, which is the book for wandering, weary Christians who are wondering where things went wrong. And part of me very much feels that. Part of me feels that deeply. But the other part of me is a pastor who desperately wants people to find value in the church and come back. So maybe Sarah can help me figure out which side is going to win over. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kristen. I I feel that too. So I think this is going to be a really fun, a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. I'm I'm glad to know that you're also feeling this tension of like in the middle. It can be a lonely place to be sometimes, you know? Yeah, I think that's where I've lived for a long time. And so writing the book was um, was surprisingly kind of cathartic and helped me to kind of clarify some of the reasons why I've kind of landed in this middle space. Yeah. Well, I know that a lot of our listeners um, go to Mosaic Church, where I'm. that's where I'm a pastor on staff. And so a lot of them are used to being in the middle, but also a lot of our listeners are from all across the country and they're listening here because their churches maybe are on one side or the other, and they're coming for these conversations. So I know that you're going to help a lot of people feel seen and understood <laughs> today. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm excited to to dive in. Awesome. So for a little bit of background, you grew up in the 80s and 90s. Is that right? Like evangelical? So same. Okay, cool. Same. So I think of things buzzwords, right? Like right out of the gate, like rapture, left behind, purity culture, like focus on the the family. (laughs) What have I missed? What else do you want to tell us about? Um, Good. uh, See you at the polls would be a good one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How could I forget? There's so many fun, so many fun ones. Yeah. It sounds like we're cut from the same cloth then for sure. Yes. Did you do youth groups and church camp and like the totally, whole deal? Like lock-ins, hundred oh, percent. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I think some of my, some of my friends had families that were more conservative, like culturally. And so maybe they were homeschooled or didn't watch a lot of television. So I was very immersed in church culture, but also very immersed in just American culture and watched TGIF on Friday nights and on ABC. Yes. Went to the mall on Saturdays and church on Sundays. So I was very, my, my upbringing was very suburban, middle-class American, as well as very church, church focused. So that was kind of my, my family's take, but I feel like some other families, friends were a little different in that way. Yeah. What denomination were you growing up? Non-denominational, which I think oh, ba- you were basically, okay. which basically meant theologically pretty, pretty Baptist, but it was just a non-denominational church in Indiana. I grew up in Fort Wayne in the northeast part of the state. Um, and okay. then when we moved to Seattle, we started going to a PCA church, which has recently become Anglican, a part of the ACNA. So my church journey has wandered a little bit. In college, I went to a CMA church, Christian Missionary Alliance, that was uh, led by a hippie pastor. So just a lot of, a lot of different, a lot of different experiences from liturgy to very much not liturgy. Yeah. 
Well, I think a lot of people, I think there is a big need for people our age who grew up in the same generation that we did, because we have this, I grew up Methodist, but also in the Midwest in Michigan. And basically all I remember Methodist meaning, meaning was like everything in moderation. So we were not, we were very conservative in belief in, in, you know, the church things, but then, yeah, like you TGIF on Fridays and slumber parties and being at the mall and all of the in the world type things. I was not allowed to listen to the radio. I don't know if that was a Methodist thing or just a like my my parents thing. That was a hard line. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, I had a lot of pop radio, a lot of Casey Kasem's, you know, top 40 countdowns and all of that. I wish I had had a little more uh, public radio and a little less pop radio looking back, but that's one way we're that's so that's one difference. But we met on TGIF. We were both watching um Full House on Friday nights or whatever. Yes. Yes, all of it, all of it. Family Matters, Step by Step, Boy Meets World, all of them. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, All right, so in the introduction of your book, you talked about a little bit about growing up as a Christian. And you said that there were times that you didn't feel set apart, that we were supposed to be set apart, but instead you felt isolated or unsettled, like you were carrying a weight. Mm -hmm. When did you start to feel like something was off or that possibly there was something different? Yeah, you know, as a so as a kid, my um my dad converted to Christianity in the 70s. He was raised in a secular Jewish home in Indiana and had a pretty radical conversion. He was at a Bible study. He and my mom were married for 6 months, were divorced quickly. They were young and and uh, in a different place. He was doing a Bible study in the book of Daniel. And one one week just felt like The way he talks about it sounds like a movie, but he said he just felt like the Holy Spirit come on him. He ran out of the apartment, like leapt over the couch, ran out of the apartment to the parking lot and just fell on his face and became a Christian in this powerful moment. And then my mom ended up seeing him again a few months later and didn't recognize him. I mean, she said that his countenance had changed. His face had like lifted. Mm -hmm. It was really beautiful. So I was raised in this really like really beautiful family in that way. But my dad also in that time when he was converted, got really into end times culture, like a lot of, like a lot of folks in my parents' generation. And so by the time I came up, my parents got remarried. And by the time I I came along in the late seventies, I was very much raised loving Jesus, but being really afraid of, uh, of the rapture or of not being able to get married or have a career or whatever, because Jesus would return. And so in my childhood there, I carried a real sense of fear. And, you know, like when we talk about that stuff now, if you were an end times kid, there's part of it that sounds really, it is campy and funny. Like I rewatched a thief in the night and some Christian scare movies researching the book and they're really silly, but some of the scenes that I saw, again, I just felt that same visceral old fear that I had when I was like 10 or 12 watching them. And so, yeah. So there's something that you really carry. So in my formative years, that really was sort of steeped in my heart of fear and a love of God. Um, and I kind of carried that into high school um, when I began then to read poetry and get into different music and kind of get into aesthetics and ideas. And I thought maybe Seattle would be this magic land where my desire to be like a cool Christian could all come together. And because I'd heard about this church out here where there are these musicians that attend it and, uh, you know, quickly we got out here and I realized that wasn't the case, it became a very disorienting time spiritually. And so I emerged from kind of this first era of a kind of fear-based faith as a kid into young adulthood with a lot of optimism and a lot of creativity. 
landed in Seattle 20 years ago and that very quickly unraveled. And so I walked through more than a decade of what I just call a spiritual desert where I, I really did feel like at the end I was carrying like a bag on my shoulder of, of weighted rocks. There was a physicality to the tension I felt yeah. between going to church on Sunday, but the rest of my life was very assimilated and very flat. And so if I had a light, it was like almost snuffed out, you know, under the bush. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was a bit of it. So there were kind of two phases for me. Long answer. Yeah. That's a bit of it. No, it's good. And I think that anybody, I mean, I think that's a very honest answer. It sounds like you kind of woke up as I air quote earlier than I did, but I do think that for a lot of people who are going, Hey, maybe I believed this. And now I see that there's more to it. It is a process. It's not necessarily just a like, Oh, yesterday, I believe this. And today I believe this, like, it's not that easy. Yeah, that's right. And the thing that I finally figured out at the end of this kind of more than decade of wandering around spiritually here in Seattle was that I was not being well-formed, that my formation was not really rooted in the message of Jesus, the upside down message of the first would be last. And there's this freedom that comes usually not because we're spared from affliction, but because we walk through things and find empathy and community in those spaces. I just, I kind of grew up in those years. So that was my twenties to mid thirties where I realized if I believe this stuff, like if it's not a myth, if I believe that Jesus was actually born of a virgin and was resurrected. And if it's all true, like I need to figure out what that means and how that should change me and other people, because it felt very cultural and it was how I was raised. So it took me in another sense, a really long time. I'm in my mid forties now. And I'd say it's only been in the last 10 years that I've really begun to seriously pursue my faith. Yeah. Well, and speaking about empathy and compassion, even in the first chapter, you it, it kind of reads of justice. You said, if your identity gives you access to power, comfort does not demand reformation. So was there like one particular thing that opened your eyes to seeing beyond yourself and to yeah. seeing, you know, the perspective of other people? Yeah. I mean, I think that what happened was I moved to the city and I realized that the city is a complicated place to identify as a Christian. And so okay. in, in this interesting way, you know, growing up in Indiana, there was cultural Christianity everywhere. Everybody either went to church or if they didn't, that was kind of unusual when I was growing up mm-hmm. in Seattle. In a place like this, it's not an accidental attendance. I mean, if you go to church here, you typically, unless you're like a teen being dragged by your mom and dad, you typically want to be there. So in a way, it's refreshing But I think something about landing in Seattle and seeing the sort of animosity or tension that I felt that was surprising, um, which Kristen, I really didn't understand until years later was because that was the rise of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll in the city. It was a time when there was a lot of large kind of political sort of um, rhetoric, like there were all kinds of articles in the newspaper about it. Like we happened to move here when things were really kind of blowing up culturally. Oh my gosh, I cannot imagine. Yeah. Something in that time, I think kind of solidified it for me. So I don't know if I have a clear answer, but I know that I kind of know the season that made me think, okay, things are more difficult and confusing than I thought they were. And that was only like sealed. The deal was sealed then in 2016 when Trump was elected. And regardless of how you voted or what you think about politics, like the crystal clear way that we many of us could see the division and brokenness in the church was just it was just like served on a platter you know I just saw we're really broken and those of us that are pursuing Jesus in spite of it all like I think we have some work to do 
Yeah. Well, and like you were mentioning, like you even said at the very beginning of our conversation, it's that tension, right? Of going like, whether it, whether it is for you, Trump, Mark Driscoll, whatever else, you know, it would be for the people that are listening. When you have that moment of going, okay, I'm a Christian and these people are Christians and we're supposed to wear the same label, but I want nothing to do with these people. And I don't want to be associated with people yet we're supposed to be on the same team. Like it is just this moment of going, I got to either decide, is that what this looks like? Is this what being a Christian looks like? Or do I need to somehow break out and reclaim what it means? Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I, when I say orphaned believer, I really just mean uh, any Christian in America or in the West looking around at the church and having trouble finding Jesus, like in certain pockets of it, you know, and that may be a cultural orphaning, like for somebody living in the Bible belt, there may be a lot of talk about Christianity, but it's hard to find a real authentic faith that welcomes lament or that feels really genuine or really formative. Or it might be somebody like me living in a more urban space where it's kind of exhausting to explain, hi, I'm Sarah, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you what that means. There's just a lot of, um, a lot of explanation required and that's tiring, you know, and sort of different. So there's cultural orphaning or spiritually, if you just feel like you've been hurt by the church or hung out to dry, or if you can't square what you're seeing in the church with the message and work of Jesus, there's a real kind of estrangement that can happen in our hearts and that can take root. And so for some of us, it's both. Um, Yeah. That's a really hard place to be. So I think part of writing the book was just to say, like, if that's where you are, you're not alone. There's a lot of us in a lot of different places that are walking through the same things and asking the same questions. Right. And I think there can even be an added layer too of, again, especially for people who grew up when we did in a very like clear, this is what Christianity looks like. Those of us that are trying to break away from even our familial beliefs or the things that we grew up with where, and and I've talked to people, I've had these conversations where like, but they're like, but my siblings and my parents and my home church and this are all still very much what they grew up with. And then they being the sole person in their family stepping like that is a whole nother added layer of complication. Yeah. That can feel really lonely. And, you know, I I don't know anybody, there's no one that I know that has not had some kind of relational sever or some kind of change in a dynamic after the result of the last, the last few years. I mean, whether it's politics or different feelings about the pandemic or ways that we responded to the murder of George Floyd, like there's whatever the, Whatever the issue is or was, or maybe it was a whole cocktail of all of them, everybody is feeling some kind of brokenness. Maybe you saw someone show up online in this very aggressive or surprising way. Maybe you lost a family member to QAnon or a conspiracy theory and they just changed and withdrew. Maybe it's a former pastor or mentor that's in a really different place. Like, how do we... How do we square the reading of the gospel with the what we're seeing in culture? It's very disorienting. And... um. And to me, I began to ask, what happens if I'm working for the church to be, to maintain unity and it never it never happens? Like, I really felt mm-hmm. discouraged. Like, what if I live the rest of my life and things just get worse? Um, yeah. But what I began to realize is that if what Jesus left us with, if the church is true, like if it really is the gathered body of believers, I began to realize, oh, that means that it's not our job to kind of frenetically or nervously keep the church together like Jesus loves the church Jesus leads the church there will always be a remnant of believers 
moving towards Jesus in the presence of a whole lot of brokenness. And so I began to kind of calm down and feel a little more non-anxious with my hands open to realize like, Jesus, this is your, we're your people. We're really broken with help, you know? Yeah. that kind of reframed it for me at the bottom of my despair about all of it. Yeah. Well, and to have the realization that there are other people like you, like me, like us out there that yeah, maybe, right. you know, we are not physically in the same place as, or they're, they're not in the churches that are near us, but like, listen, I think the internet is a magical place if we use it the right way. And there are other believers like they're out there. We just have to find them. Me too. Yeah. I think that a lot of us feel pretty complicated about social media dynamics and the internet. It can be a place for you go to waste time or can feel alienating or highlight difference, but it's true. The amount amount of people that we're able to find in different places, it's really a beautiful gift if it's used in health. So I I still struggle with that a little bit. I'm back and forth, but I've made so many lovely connections with other folks. That's right. Yeah. All right. So back to the book, we kind of, we kind of rabbit show, which is totally fine. That's what we do here. Um, but in chapter two, which was called sad confetti that already, I was like, Oh, cause I'm a confetti girl. I'm a glitter girl. So I was like, Oh, <laughs> sad confetti. But you talked about how, um, your dad turned your posture toward fear and away from joy and peace. Yeah. And you asked the question, like, did my dad intentionally or inadvertently use fear to try and control me? Yeah. And you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think a lot of us have felt this. And I know at least for me personally, I still feel a pull back to this again. When I, when I think about what do I believe in why, and what did I believe in why? And when I am questioned or, um, maybe not even questioned, but there's some kind of comment action behavior taken that says in some kind of roundabout way, Hey, you're off base here. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it still something is fear still something that you have to fight against? Or have you like figured out a way to break out of it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's certainly something that I have to fight against. I mean, I think that I used to be afraid. I used to be afraid that I would turn over a rock and find something, you know, in college, I went to Taylor in Indiana and we had this really great um, president, Jay Kessler. And he'd always say in chapel, this is a place where you can turn over rocks. And if there's something bigger than God under the rock that eats God, we can worship that thing, which was just kind of a silly way of saying, don't be afraid to question. But the truth is I spent a lot of my life being very afraid to question because I was feeling, I felt like would I go down the slippery slope? Like, would would there be a point where I would lose orthodoxy or I would lose context or I would lose Jesus because I got so disillusioned? And so I was just afraid that if I asked too many questions or asked for too long, that I would just kind of slip. And the truth is, it is it has very much been the opposite experience for, for me personally, where the more that I've opened up the possibility of, of asking, the more that I've normalized doubt and realized that doubt and faith are not the opposite, that there's a healthy doubt that I think um, other people in healthy communities can help us walk through. The way that I've seen life take a little while sometimes if we're blessed with the gift of long life. I mean, yeah. if I would have known I would have had more than a decade of of sort of spiritual wandering, I would have thought that's wild. But on the other <laughs> side this would have seemed impossible really but yeah. on the other side I see God's hand through that time like leading me forward and the graciousness that can come if we persevere and let things take the time that they take so I think that 
while I do have fear, especially bringing up kids, I mean, the most important thing in my life is like the joy and gift of bringing up kids in the faith. But like, so I think my fear now may resonate towards how am I parenting them well to maybe not make the mistakes my parents did. But I think I'm just in general, a lot more non-anxious. My hands are open. I welcome doubt because I trust that if it's real, again, if God is good, and if we're able to persevere, that we'll we'll be able to find our way through kind of like following a path of of breadcrumbs out. And so yeah. I, I know that because I've seen it in my life and other people's lives. Um, yeah. It took me a while to, to get there. I, I think that our parents did the best that they could. And I feel like they were being handed almost like a lesson plan. Here is what you tell your kids about sex. Here is what you tell your kids about hell. Here is what you tell your kids about the end times. And so at least that's how it felt growing up for me. Everything was, was known and this is definitive and this is true. And this is, you know, but then like as kids, oh my gosh, I had so much fear. Like this is something I'm just going to, I never thought I would say the sentence out loud, literally, let alone into a microphone. But like, I remember growing up as a kid and going, okay, I'm supposed to fear the end of the world. Like, or I am fearing the end of the world. I'm fearing the rapture, but I'm also being fed purity culture and being promised that one day, if I do everything right, I'm going to have this like amazing husband and amazing sex life. And so then I had this secret fear of, well, what if Jesus comes back before I ever get to have sex? And it's supposed to be this amazing thing. Oh, for sure. I thought this, I thought the same, if it makes you feel it, I thought the same thing. And I've heard other friends say that too. That's true. That's like a wonderful, beautiful gift of life. And it does feel really freaky to think that could be, could not be accessible, right? Right. (laughs) And then it's compounded by like, okay, now, now I have a fear of like losing my salvation. What if I forget to ask God to forgive me for these thoughts and these questions before something happens. And then I go to hell. <laughs> like it just That was a really big thing for me too. You know, I, I would lay in bed and every night and ask Jesus into my heart when I was a kid for yes. days and weeks and months. And I know a lot of us did. And I, yeah. I thought a lot about that and wondered why. And so I think it's because as evangelicals, we were raised to believe that the onus was so much on us. Like I very much believe yeah. in conversion like referencing back to that, what happened to my dad, like whatever a conversion looks like, his was pretty extreme. If it's quiet, if it's a series of prayer, a series of time or a single moment, whatever that means, I don't mean this theologically, but the idea was that it was so much on me and I had to get it right. And was my name in the book of life. And I would just lie in bed at night and visualize like whatever my kid brain thought of as the book of life and was my name there. It was very literal and scary. But now I think as an adult that we can carry each other through through seasons of doubt and fear. And so I just think that in health, the church can really normalize that process and do that with us. Like my husband has carried me so many times when I've doubted mm-hmm. and I've done the same for him. And it's just, yeah, it's so beautiful and countercultural because I think that the market and I think that like American culture says that like we should be able to decide and customize our faith experience, or, you know, if we should be able to kind of make sure that if we're like one more green juice in that, maybe we're closer to feeling like our best self or something like, yeah. I just love that instead we can be broken together in a healthy, safe place. Um, it's really kind of calmed me down too. I think about the salvation piece. I think too, you know, I love people are like, when did you get saved? I'm like, which time? Because every yeah. time there was an altar call, I went forward or I raised <laughs> my hand or I prayed the prayer because yeah. I had to make sure it stuck. 
And yeah, I do think that churches now are, and as we parent our own kids even, right? Going, all right, it's not a one and done. It's not a like, you're broken and then you're whole. You're a sinner and then you're saved. And it is a process. And we get to not negate what we used to learn or what we used to know, but we just get to build on it and it's okay. And it doesn't mean that we weren't a good enough Christian when we started. It meant we were just starting. Like yeah, that's beautiful. we get to learn and grow. Yeah, total. That's lovely. Yes. That's very much been my experience too. And I think a lot of us, if we've been in the Christian life for any amount of time, have found a very similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So back to talking about, we were talking about the church and, you know, the church is full of broken people as I think it should be, but we also don't get to, and there are a lot of people listening who are not currently in a church because either they don't feel safe or they're just between like, maybe I know a lot of people left during, like you said, a lot of the tension over the last couple of years, turmoil, things changed. But at the same time, we don't get to build our dream community of like idealistic people. We don't get to go, I'm not going to go to church until I find this perfect, beautiful thing where everybody agrees with me. So how can we find the line between settling versus waiting for a church that doesn't actually exist? Yeah, it's such a great question. I was thinking about this the other day with my husband. Like, I don't think that there's any church that any of us couldn't find something to criticize about within the first time we attended. I mean, there is no such thing as a perfect church because we're all just a bunch of broken people. There's no such thing as a perfect person. And we're just, the church is just the gathered body of believers. But, you know, I was reflecting on how we serve like a Trinitarian God, like God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in community together. And it's just such a beautiful model and reflection for what we could be. And so I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, with the church, maybe I don't, (laughs) excuse me, get to pick who I worship with. Like maybe people are people that I wouldn't have asked to brunch or to a dinner party. Um, And I think that that's really good, like really good for us when we're around people that maybe we're different from, that could be in a real uh, clear way. Maybe we're in different generations or we have different political or social views or different socioeconomic background, whatever that looks like it may just be a personality thing. I just think it's so healthy and just models the way that the real church in the world is to choose to be in a part of a broken community with other people showing up that maybe at first you don't relate to, but then you end up like you end up loving or supporting. It just builds empathy and understanding. I think that's so good. And the other thing that I love, I think about the church is just this idea of corporate worship of being able to really come together to praise God. That's really special. And the other thing I I really love are the sacraments, you know, like standing in this communion line and thinking about going all the way back of all the saints before us and everyone that comes after us, like being able to be in the presence of the body and blood is so cool. So I say all of that and also say, when I think about church, I don't think about a certain congregation or a certain size, like maybe maybe for you right now, you are taking a break and like, bless you. Like that is, that is a place where God can meet you. Or maybe it's two or three people together. Maybe like we talked about, it's an online space that feels healthy and safe. Like whatever it looks like in this season, I think the point is to resist isolation and to move towards community in a way that feels safe or that is possible for you right now. Like to move towards other people I think that when we isolate ourselves, there's just an impoverishment of the spirit that can come really quickly, a lot of despair and discouragement. And so I think that when I think about church, 
wherever folks are, I just think about us kind of moving towards each other at whatever pace that we can. So I use that very loosely, but I say that also recognizing the real beauty of this kind of church and health. Um, Yeah. 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 You said in the book too, you said when we deny our identity and pull away from the term Christian, we orphan ourselves. And I was like, oh, wow. And again, it's this tension, right? Of um, maybe you haven't found the right church, but also are you willing to, like you said, jump into a community? Are you willing to engage with people that are not like you? Are you willing to lean in somewhere and find this space, even if a quote unquote church doesn't fit comfortably anymore? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I also interact with folks all the time online that are really struggling with what terms to use, even to describe their Christian identity. Um, There's where they worship on Sundays. And also, do I use the word Christian to identify myself? Because that word feels really weighty. And like, for me, it it is very, it's really important for me personally to use common language to describe our our faith tradition. And so regardless of what you would, what one would say about evangelicalism or, or whatever it might be, like, there's just this real clarity. If we take this word Christian follower of Christ and are able to claim it, I think, because I think a lot of folks, like, for example, Christian nationalists or people that have politicized the church or the Christian party, I think are using, are kind of co-opting that word and using it to mean or or identify very different things than a person that follows Jesus. And so some people may use different words or may not be able to identify themselves as a Christian, but I just, it feels so important for me to really think through how do we come together and unify around some common language and some common core belief to be able to move forward together and heal. Yeah, that's a really great point of common language. There was a <laughs> there was a little season where I was like, I am not using the word Christian. I mean, I'm a pastor, like obviously <laughs> I'm a Christian, but yes, because I was like, I do not want to identify with these people who are out there calling themselves Christians. And it made me like so legitimately angry to yeah. see what people were saying and doing as Christians under the name of Jesus. And I was like, I'm going to be something else. I'm going to be a Jesus follower or whatever. But basically God was like, you're running away and you're letting them have this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I felt. He was saying to me, he was like, you are just going, okay, well, they're taking this and running my name essentially through the mud and you're just going to let them do it. Like we, as how do I say this? I almost said true believers, but people who feel like we are following Jesus to the best that we possibly can. <laughs> um, we do, we have to reclaim the term. We have to say, okay, if this is not what a Christian is, instead of just passively going, all right, well, they've taken it and they've stolen it from us and they've changed it. No, we get to still stay in the fight to an extent and show the people around us. No, this is actually what it looks like to be a Christian. We have to stay in it. That's right. And that's by modeling, yeah, the upside down kingdom. And that's just by showing up. And that's the other thing I was thinking about my, my mother-in-law who lives in Baltimore, who is such an amazing person, but her work is so quiet. She volunteers many days a week. She leaves at her church. She'll never be on a headline. You know, it's just, there are such breaking news about a celebrity pastor falling or whatever, but like, there are so many people quietly, faithfully modeling to their neighbors the love of Jesus. And that, like that to me, it's funny because I'm convicted that that's the way forward. But when quiet work is not acknowledged or seen, it's harder to kind of pull out as like a, like this is really the future. But I truly believe that just where we are showing up and doing our best 
is a yeah. really beautiful and powerful way forward. So I think for me, yeah, that really starts with just claiming my identity and then trying to model with my life what it might mean to to pursue Jesus. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, so back to the, in the introduction and, and I'm circling back to the introduction at the end, but in the introduction, I think also in the close, you stated a variety of reasons why people leave the church, but also yet why you stayed. And I felt when I tell you, Sarah, I felt every single one of them. And then you use this line. You said, it's because when we jumped, we fell. And I like that. I could sob right now because that is the most tender, like, Oh my God. I just felt that so hard. I just think that is the most beautiful thing. And it's so encapsulate encapsulates for so many people why they felt they had to go because the support system, this church, this, whatever that they'd built the foundation of their life on was not there to catch them when things did not work out perfectly. So my question to you is in saying all of that, why do you still stay today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, I just want to say that the, I wrote that when I wrote that line, I was thinking about when we moved to Seattle, we were a part of this really thriving church. And we had this pastor that said, you know, if you go, like, if you go, God will meet you. Like, don't worry about money or don't worry about where you'll live. Like, just go. And we went yeah. and we just, we just fell on the concrete. Like we felt pretty hard pretty quickly and became yeah. very disoriented. And so I just have such a tenderness for the seasons in life when we're just starting out with this optimism that we can change. And then really quickly that crumbles. And that just the, the loneliness um, and the grief of that is very hard to walk through. But I think that is the very place where Jesus can meet us in a powerful yeah. way. And so it took our story a while that that happened um, after a little bit, but um, I'm still, uh, I'm still a Christian because where else, where else would I go? Like I remain, um, I remain more than ever after writing this book about what happened in the eighties and nineties that started a lot of the fractures of, of the church. And after all of the pain and grief, um, I remain more convinced and convicted than ever that the, that the, the figure of Jesus, that the beautiful life of Jesus, the sort of prophetic way that Jesus lived, um, that bold, beautiful witness is just so compelling and draws near in surprising ways. I just, I'm actually ironically or paradoxically more filled with hope than ever that Jesus is working and doing beautiful things in the hearts of believers right now. And I think that maybe we have to go through seasons like this sometimes to really clarify who we are and what our work is and what the way forward is. And so in a way that I can't explain, I probably could explain better in writing, but that I carry and feel and hold, I hold a hope that I'm a Christian because it's not a, it's not a myth because it's real and it's going somewhere. Um, yeah. And so however long that takes or whatever that looks like, I just feel um, a real conviction to keep going and to keep finding other people like you along the way that are pursuing Jesus um, in the yeah. presence of a lot of brokenness, you know? So I just, I'm, I'm really strangely filled with hope. Yeah. Well, and another one of my favorite lines that you wrote in the book, you said the church remains our best hope because she is what Jesus left us with. And so the podcast, I want to ask you two more questions that we can just kind of give our listeners some practical things that they can do. The church, the podcast is called becoming church, right? Because we very much love the church body. We love the church community, but we also believe that it doesn't just take place in an hour on Sunday mornings. Like we want to equip our people 
and everybody that's listening to be the church in the people around them. So maybe specifically for people who are not currently in a building or don't have a church home, how can they become the church to people around them? Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful question. I mean, the the first answer that comes to mind is that I think we model being the church to those around us, whether or not we're a part of an active church community by being being well-formed first in our own heart and in our spiritual journey. And so that may mean, I mean, for a while, like, I go through seasons when it's hard to pray. I just came out of a season like yeah. that, that lasted for a little while. I just would encourage folks to read, to read a psalm, to read liturgy, to read um to read prayers from other saints along the way. Like, I think that sometimes if we don't know how to grow or to be well-formed because we're in a place of weakness, it just means praying the word help. You know, I've done that many yeah. times over the past few years. And every time, every time that answer has come through other people. And so I think I'd also say that it's important to have our eyes open and to look around and see the way God uses other people in our lives, regardless of regardless of whether or not they go to church, just to actually model back to us what the church is like in the world. I think that's really beautiful. And I'd also say that art and music and creation and being outdoors, there's a lot of real arrows that point us to God's goodness and God's beauty and God's love. Um, and so I also would say just sitting in silence instead, I think that the way that I used to pray was very nervous and kind of a laundry list of of worries, but all of them kind of end it with God, am I okay? God, are you real? God, are you with me? Am I going to go to heaven? Just a lot of questions. But the way that I have learned to pray now is just to be quiet and to listen and to really sense God's presence and love and to, again, be a little bit more non-anxious. So I think I would tell folks to become the church people around you by first pursuing and continuing to pursue your own formation and then to open your eyes and see how God's um, love is really alive in other people around us and in the needs of our own city and community. And again, back to that idea of it being a process, right? It's a growth process. I think if we can break out of the mindset of like, now I'm spiritually, you know, depleted and now I'm spiritually full and now I'm good. Like we're never going to reach that. <laughs> Absolutely. We all go through seasons of, of consolation and desolation and um, it's almost like the, it's almost like a season, like it's spring right now and it's beautiful, you know, in the States, but it's like, we all go through those various seasons in our soul and in our spirit. And sometimes that's because of external things. We lose somebody we love or right. we lose a job, but sometimes it's just because of something we can't even really say or trace back, but we just go through a season of discouragement or loss. And so if that's for a reason, you know, or not, if you're in that time, just like persevere because it is for a season and there is another side of it. Yeah. And and if we ever arrive at the place where we think we've like, quote unquote, made it, Something's somebody probably wrong. needs to come <laughs> humble us. Yeah, <laughs> Something's going on there. <laughs> All right. The last question I want to ask you, this is a very tender one. And this is a question that I actually get asked often for people who are in a church community right now, right? They see the value in church. They love church. They want to fight for the church. How can they both be a safe space for other people in their lives while also encouraging them to come back? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard. I think that, you know, the church that I've, I've been at the same church for 18 years, Grace here in Seattle, and have gone through so many seasons in the church where we've had times where people have left and we've had times where people have flooded in. It's just seeing this kind of long thread of two decades of the life of a church. and 
Lately, there have been folks that have been coming back that have been curious, that have been, had attended before and hadn't come for a while. And I think that there's this way in which um, a church community can take a posture of, of welcome with like a sense of spaciousness. And so I think that it's possible that if you're in the church and want to be able to welcome folks back, like making it a space of, I don't know, of not a lot of questions or prodding, but just saying, hi, how are you? Um, is really, I think that's really simple, but I think there's something to it. I think that people feel better if there's not an expectation to answer or account, but can just kind of show up or come back and then not come back for a while. And I think that's okay. Um, but I think that if we have hearts burning for change, like if there's something, if we're in the church and we want to work to reform the church, um, but still make it a place that feels welcome, I think those are kind of different tasks and different roles. I think that sometimes working to reform the church means thinking about what might be going on denominationally or what might be going on kind of in broader culture and how to have those conversations um, with people that are within our communities already and then do that while also making room and then giving margin for people who are exploring church and want to come back to poke their head in the door. Um, So I think that those conversations should all be plain and transparent, but maybe Maybe they kind of happen um, at the same time, but with different folks. I don't know. So I think that for our church, I think it's just being a place with the doors open that knows that there's going to be seasons that are like leaner where people leave and come back and just to kind of normalize that flow or those waves of going up and down and letting that be okay. And I think that that is hard to do well, but I think that that's a a real calling. I I just thought about that verse. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And I think that that's a beautiful model for what church can be, like a place of spaciousness and rescue where folks can sense the delight of God. And we don't feel like we have to work to do that, but we can trust the spirit to bring folks in and to model that spaciousness of heart, I guess. Yeah. I think one of the things that shifted for, for me or for us at Mosaic is the idea that we are just creating a space for people to engage with God. Like he's already talking to them. We are not trying to convince them of anything. We are not trying to get them to believe what we believe. We are not trying to, you know, have them check any boxes, but yeah, if we can be the kind of people and the kind of community where anyone, regardless of what they believe, the last time they stepped foot in a church can come in with their questions, with their doubts, with whatever level of you know, belief they have or don't have and get the same welcome as somebody who's been there for, you know, 18 years, Sunday after Sunday. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. That's what we do. You know, we just create the environment for God to meet them and that's it. Yeah. I love that. Amen. Amen. Like my kind of church. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll have to, you come out to the East coast. I'll go out to the West coast. I love that. Uh, Saros, thank you so much for being here. You guys listen to me. I read this book so fast. I devoured it. It was beautiful. If you grew up in the church in the eighties and the nineties, you have got to get it. It's called Orphaned Believers. And I will put a link in the show notes. Sarah, is there anything else you wanted to say? I just want to say thanks for having me. This has been such a joy. I've loved this conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really hope that you felt seen in this conversation. If you feel alone wandering out in the wilderness between maybe an old belief system and you're not quite sure where God is leading you yet, I just want you to know that you are not alone. Sarah's book, Orphan Believers, will show you that, it will support you, and it will give you encouragement that hope is coming and things can change. 
Thank you so much for being here. If you will rate our podcast on whatever platform you listen, it really does help other people to find this show and hopefully it will help them this way that it has helped you. Thanks guys. We'll see you next time.